Hi, I'm Craig. And I'm Bonnie from Dezeco Lodge, and you're listening to the Avalanche Hour podcast. Eventually, your training and your experience kind of levels out to a kind of a nice, comfortable level of acceptable risk that you're willing to accept. Like, you know, people think that it's always some big avalanche slope that, that's going to get you, but it can be very small micro features as well. You're in the wrong place, it's a little teeny terrain trap, or, you know, it's, it was an eye-opener. You are tuned in to another episode of the Avalanche Hour podcast. I'm your Canadian correspondent, Wes Gregg. I'm excited to be contributing to every third Thursday of the podcast. The Avalanche Hour is proudly presented by MND Safety, a global leader in avalanche hazard management. And our good friends at Ten Barrel Brewing, drink beer outside, with additional support from Interwest Insurance. The goal of this podcast is to create a stronger community through the sharing of stories, knowledge, and news amongst people who have a curious fascination with avalanches. In this episode, we're excited to announce a little promo and contest from Primo Snow and Avalanche. Need a new snow saw? Primo Snow and Avalanche has been producing the El Professional Snow Saw. Matt Promono hand sharpens these things in the little Bavarian Washington town of Leavenworth. You can grab a new snow saw from primosnowavalanche.com. Use the code TAH10 at checkout for 10% off. We're also giving away four of these saws throughout the season. For the first draw, email us a screenshot to the Avalanche Hour Podcast at gmail.com of your podcast subscription. If you haven't subscribed, this is a great time to do so. Great time to tell a friend. We'll draw the first winner and announce it during Matt's interview that will air on January 5th. The El Professional cuts straight and is lightweight. This week, I'm excited to share my interview with some pioneers in the backcountry game in northern BC. Craig Evanoff and Bonnie Hoagie from DeSeco Lodge located in the northern Rockies. We talk about the outlook and changes in their business in the wake of this pandemic. and get some great insights from the most amazing team I've had the pleasure to spend time with. Enjoy. Okay, yeah, good. I got you. So I'm going to hang up the phone and... Yeah, there we'll we carry go. on. Oh, technology. The beauties of technology. Sure. Okay, so um, what do you want to talk to us about? I think for me, you guys both were a part in my introduction into avalanche terrain in British Columbia. I did my AST1 with you in Williams Lake years ago, and we went to Timothy and, and did our field day there. And oh, then, yeah. And then uh, we attempted to do our AST2 and Penny there to go into red and that... Uh, ended up getting snowed out. So I, I thought it would be great to reach out to you and then vaguely remember when we were at Penny sitting around talking, waiting for the snow to slow down so that we could take off in the helicopter, that your background goes pretty deep into the history of backcountry skiing in Northern BC and in <laughs> British Columbia, right? <laughs> that makes me sound pretty old. <laughs> yeah, both, well, both, both Bonnie and I, I mean, we started, well, backcountry skiing, Back when we started, I mean, I don't know, even really know if we we called it backcountry skiing, but yeah, I mean, we both just, I mean, we both kind of grew up skiing at, at ski resorts, and and uh, and and then we kind of got tired of skiing on our on our downhill equipment at ski resorts. So back in the early eighties, I mean, telemark skiing was kind of just starting to become kind of you know popular again, and so, we, you know, we started telemarking on the hills and then from there, you know, we just kind of took it a little bit further and, 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 you know, went kind of as far as we could go, you know, with the crappy equipment that, that we had back in the early eighties. And I guess that, yeah, I guess, I mean, I guess it was backcountry skiing, but it was really more, you know, just, <laughs> just a search to find some untracked snow that eventually led us, you know, you know, out of the resorts and, and onto the bigger, bigger mountains. 
not to put a, a a number on your age or anything like that, but definitely you guys fall into the category of pioneers. Can we get a little bit of background on what your professional accreditations are and your overall background and how you got into guiding working in the backcountry? Yeah. Okay. Well, um, yeah, so I kind of mentioned when we got our start in backcountry skiing, this is both Bonnie and I back in the, in the very early 80s. Um, so uh, my dad started the lodge um, in 1985. It was built in the summer of 85. And the first season up here was in 86. And then prior to that, um, he, he got interested in backcountry skiing before I did. So um, he was a, I mean, he skied his whole life, at, mostly at, at ski resorts. And he was a ski patrol at Purden's Ski Village, which is like the local place in Prince George, you know, as I was growing up. And I think that's really how, you know, our family could afford to ski every weekend is because he got a pass <laughs> for the family because of the ski patrol. And so he was, he was really into the ski patrol. And, uh, but he kind of had this sort of, you know, dream, I guess, to, you know, to get out into the, into the kind of, into the you know untraveled backcountry more than the resorts and and then uh, uh in the 70s him and another guy who was on the local ski patrol they formed a business and and they started up a helicopter skiing company out in in these mountains where we here like in the mcgregor and the Dezeco ranges and it was just a really small company they used a, a long ranger helicopter and it was just day trips yeah. There was no lodge out here. So they kind of based it right out of Prince George. And and I think that kind of really opened up his eyes as, as to what there was. I think, you know, most people who live in Prince George don't even realize that we have these kind of mountainous areas, you know, close to Prince George because you can't really see them from town. And so, you know, flying around here and doing a bit of alley skiing, he realized there's pretty good potential here for, for skiing. And, you know, so the heli ski company never really worked out that well because, he, you know, he was flying a long ways. They didn't have a lodge. So he did that for maybe half a dozen years. And, you know, I came out with him uh, once or twice. And, you know, I was pretty impressed with the skiing out here as well. Yeah. Although at that time I was still a hardcore, you know, downhill skier. And, um, and so he, he finally decided to pack in with heli skiing and he got interested in, in backcountry ski touring based out of a lodge. And um, my sister, who lives down in Kimberley in southeastern BC, she had some friends um, that had a commercial backcountry lodge. It was the first one, like in western or in, in BC, first commercial backcountry lodge. It was called Tarmigan Tours. And hmm. so my dad uh, went down there and I went to spend a week there with uh, uh, Marty Jamison and Art Toomey, who were the owners of that, and decided, you know, he'd like the idea, and he, he knew that the mountains up here would be perfect for that kind of an experience. So he got back and got down to, you know, going through the licensing uh, procedure um, to get access to some crown land, which back in those days it was pretty easy to do. And so 85, he built the lodge, uh, and 86 um, started skiing up here. And so then, um, you know, Bonnie and I had, had been skiing in the local mountains, you know, places like the farm and, yep. and uh, Fang, or, you know, not too far from where we are here. Um, you know, Grizzly Dan Cabin, Raven Lake Cabin, all those places off Highway 16 yeah. for, you know, four or five years prior to that. But then once the lodge was built, you know, automatically, you know, we, we came up here to help out. And then that's kind of when we really, you know, kind of got into the, into the business. It wasn't our business. It was my dad's business, but we were helping out with the guiding and stuff like that. At that time, um, you know, I wasn't a, a certified guide. Um, my career was in forestry. That's what I went to school with. So I was working at forestry, but mostly in the civil culture end of things. So I, in the winters, I, I had free to ski. And, um, and that's kind of what I thought I was going to do. I mean, I loved skiing in the backcountry, but I, I really didn't have any intentions on getting into, you know, guiding as a professional at that time. Uh, I was just up here helping my dad out because it was fun. 
and um, and the same with Bonnie, I think. And uh, and then in 1998, my dad died, um, and kind of he died suddenly. It was a it was a grizzly bear attack, and so wow. all of a sudden, I'm left uh, with this lodge out in the mountains. Uh, you know, I never really thought I was going to be running a lodge, and, you know. So in '98, all of a sudden, I've got this lodge uh, on my hands and trying to figure out what to do with it. You know, I'm thinking, well. You know, I kind of plan on making my career forestry, and and uh, uh, should I get into the lodge business? So we kind of hummed and hawed about it for you know a year, and, and then slowly we started just trying it out, doing a couple of trips. Yep. And and, and after a while, you know, we thought you know it was kind of fun, and it's quite gratifying to be able to have a good week up here skiing in the mountains with a fun group of guests. So that's when I decided to, you know, go through the formal uh, guide training and certification process. So, um, yeah, I think I became a full ski guide uh, maybe about 2003 or four or something like that. Right. And, uh, of course, to become a full ski guide, you have to go through the CAA program, the you know, one and, and the and the ops level two and all that at the same time so you know that all took me maybe you know once i decided to do it you know maybe in the late 90s it might have taken me you know maybe four or five years to kind of get all that done yeah. until i became a full ski guide yeah and then since then um you know we've been spending more and more time up here for a while it was you know kind of a tough goal trying to put a full season together up here but for the last, you know, three years or so, you know, we finally got a good client base. Yeah. And also, I think um, just backcountry skiing itself is, is really exploding in popularity. And uh, so, you know, now, we're, you know, it's, it's actually turned into a, a full-time job yeah. Yeah. <laughs> up here. I mean, we, you know, we spent a couple of months up here in the winter, but there's a lot more that goes into it. Um, I mean, just with, you know, maintenance on the lodge, doing, you know, renovations, expansions, and then just all the administrative stuff. Um, I mean, finally, when we get up here in the winter to go skiing, I mean, all the hard work is done, really. Yeah. Um, and it's, this is the, you know, the skiing part is, is the part that makes it all worthwhile. It, the icing. Anyways, that's, that's my I don't know if Bonnie will maybe tell you a little bit about her background, which is probably pretty closely tied to what I did. Yeah, that was going to be my next well, question, yeah. Bonnie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's fairly similar, although I wasn't as lucky as, well, I wasn't as lucky as Craig. I, ha I had a full-time job, so my job went year-round. I worked with the Ministry of Forests. So it was a little more difficult for me to get um, the time off in the winter, but I had a very understanding boss <laughs> and um, worked lots of overtime in, um, in the summer and fall season. So I was able to kind of use that overtime to supplement my holiday time, which then kind of that's, that's where I got the time to take off, you know, six weeks in February, March or eight weeks or whatever. So, yeah. Yeah. And I, I did not, um, because I had a full-time job, it was very difficult for me to um, take a lot of the training courses. Yeah. And plus, I was quite, uh, quite kind of reluctant, nervous about taking the guides training thing. So I did, I only did the Avalanche Association Ops Level 1 and Level 2 program. Right. So I have the same kind of Avalanche training as Craig does but I don't have the ski guide certification with the ACMG, but our lodge association has, um, there's a couple of us owner operators mm -hmm. that were kind of grandfathered into, um, there was a committee of ski guides and stuff in our lodge association that um, kind of recognized a couple of us to be uh, qualified to guide or assistant guide guide under supervision, I guess. Yeah. Um, within our tenure area only. Right. So only within 
our Dzeko tenure, whereas Craig can go guide anywhere. Right. Kind of thing. So. Right. Yeah. No. Yeah. So that's where I'm, and I, I and I basically I'm pretty much a, like an assistant guide, tail guide kind of thing. Craig calls the shots outside, anyways. Yeah. <laughs> and then I pretty much do all the cooking inside. Oh, that sounds amazing. So we're a team. Yeah, definitely a team. I, and I noticed that like from the times that we've spent together on, on the AST1 and the AST2 for sure that uh, you guys are definitely a well-knit team. And, and I think your longstanding relationship shows that. And it, uh, it's, it's so amazing to see actually, to see firsthand. That's uh, an amazing background story on, on the Lodge and your experiences getting to where you guys both are. And now I see... Um, I follow you guys on social media and I see that this summer you guys started offering up some summer hiking trips. I, I think that's an exciting adventure. You want to give us a little detail on, on what prompted that decision and, and how's that working out? Yeah, well, it, it's something that we had thought about for quite a long time. So, I mean, the way it works with commercial recreation in the backcountry is you have to have a, a license for the, you know, for the area that you're going to operate in and the license specifies what activities you're going to do. So uh, we had done a, a tenure renewal. Oh, geez, I think it was shortly after Bonnie and I took over, like in 98, we had to renew our license. Mm -hmm. And I, 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 so I put in a renewal application that, yeah, you know, we would like to do summer trips up here, um, guided hiking. And we, we, we didn't do it for many years after that, mostly because uh, we were, you know, Bonnie definitely had a full-time job and couldn't afford to take, you know, anything more than weekends off in the summer. And I was pretty busy with my consulting, forestry consulting in the summer as well. And then, um, I mean, yeah, over the last couple of years, I guess, you know, Bonnie is totally retired from the government and, and I kind of almost retired from my forestry career. So we had the time. And, and then COVID came along mm -hmm. and um, it ended up cutting our season, our winter season short a little bit. So, I mean, we lost a little bit of, of our revenue in the winter. And then we started thinking, you know, I bet you there's a lot of people around that, you know, because they're not able to travel as freely as, as they wanted to um, before, as they could before COVID, um, you know, they might be looking for something new, kind of local. So we just put it out there. Like, we didn't really make the decision to do this for sure until about April. Oh, wow. Um, like, this, uh, this last April. So we, we just put it on our website. You know, I think we offered four four-day trips. And bang, instantly, those, those trips <laughs> filled up. <laughs> oh, like, wow. you know, it took, it took, and they were booked up. And then people were, they still, you know, more people were saying, oh, we, you know, we want to go, we want to go. And so we ended up putting together, you know, putting another one on and then another one on. And eventually, you know, we ended up with, with seven trips. Oh, wow. Which really is so um, But anyway, so, you know, it meant that we had to change a few things around here because we had never uh, operated commercially in the summer before. Like, you know, Bonnie and I had come up and just hiked around when we were up here in the summer a lot on our own. So we knew the area very well in the summer. Mm -hmm. But I mean, the lodge needed a bit of, you know, changes to kind of make it summer um, friendly, and and uh, and then also, you know, we had to kind of consider, you know, COVID uh, safety and, and stuff like that. Not only up here in the lodge, but you know, in the helicopter and at the staging areas and all that kind of stuff. So we got all that sorted out, and uh, and I think our first trip. Uh, we didn't start till kind of late summer. I think we started about mid-August, and, right. and then ended up in, in uh, mid-September. But yeah, it went well. People oh. were super happy that they had the opportunity to to come and do something local that you know that in, you know in, with a with a place that provided them with comfortable accommodations and meals and stuff like that. Oh, that's where amazing. they never had the opportunity to do that before. So yeah, I think it was a big success yeah and we kind of um we we kind of thought initially that we you know we'd only do i think i think we only actually had three trips on the on the books to try it out just you know we didn't expect 
things to work out. But what ended up happening is most, and we had initially sent out this sort of um, announcement just to our ski guests, mm-hmm. um, kind of thinking that we wanted, we didn't want to attract, we really were kind of aiming at or targeting at people that we knew already that um, we didn't really want people from outside the region really or area. Yeah. And it, that, that's what ended up happening is we got booked right away. And, and many of the ski guests chose to bring their families <laughs> and particularly non-skiing members of their families that they wanted to show the lodge and Dezeko and stuff. And also we normally our capacity is eight and we, um, we dropped it down to six and required that the group um, needed to put together their own social bubble. Right. So in that way, we kind of, we wanted either families or groups that were close, close friends where, you know, they, they feel comfortable with each other and with each other's other bubbles and social, you know, distancing precautions that they have. So, and that went pretty, very, very well, because most, I think, four of our seven groups were complete families. Oh, that's great. Um, a couple of them were grandparents and kids, too. So, yeah, we had lots of kids. And, um, yeah, it was great. Really oh. enjoyed it. Oh, that's amazing. And we're kind of sticking with the same sort of theory going into to winter. Is um, I think we will go up to eight if, they ha- if it's, it's all their own bubble. We're not... We're not putting together any groups like normally if, if somebody came and said, yeah, we've got four people, you know, we could merge them with another group of people that had inquired, but yeah. we're not going to do that at all this year. This year, it's all just a complete group has to come to us right. or a family or a, a couple group kind of thing. And if there are fewer than, than the eight or whatever, the, the price may increase then because we still have to recover. Yeah a bit like so if we go with six or something like that but I think there's been a lot of interest people are I think it's a good thing people seem to be happy with that yeah I think it's a real challenge that all backcountry lodges are are facing right now it's a really interesting I've been trying to talk to Aaron at at Soul Mountain and trying to talk to Dale at Silvertip Lodge to see how the different lodges are going to manage the group size and and I mean you guys got bills to pay, so you know the guests can yeah. can expect that costs are going to reflect that. Yeah, and it's going to be really different for each lodge because each lodge has um, different issues to deal with. Like for us, we are physically our lodge is very small, mm-hmm. so like we are in a smaller space, and so that's why we all need to be um, uh, pretty comfortable with each other, and. But for Aaron or, you know, another different lodges, they have, they are much bigger. Mm-hmm. So they've got more room to spread out. So, you know, they can have maybe perhaps they can have a couple different bubbles in there mm-hmm. and just try to keep them separate or something. But like, there's no one size fits all solutions for any of the lodges there. It's all, um, you know, what's, it's, it's going to be different for everybody. And also for the comfort level of their guests is what they like. And and True, that's it. And so. that's exactly the the idea. Really, at the end of the day, it's you know you're there providing a service for the guests, and and it's about them all being comfortable as well, not and having fun, but also feeling safe. And and it's a whole new concern as hosts and guides. I find that a, a different pressure now is put perhaps on you guys. How do you feel about that? In the sense that now you're also a little bit more responsible for ensuring their safety from just a health standpoint. Yeah, that is, it is a, definitely a real challenge. And, um, you know, how, how the different lodges are approaching, uh, approaching it is, it's pretty interesting to, to listen to what other lodges have in mind. Like I mentioned, we've just been having our AGM and most of the talk is about, you know, how we're all going to be handling it up at our lodges. But being small, in some respects, I think it's going to make it easier for us because we can go with the social bubble idea. Mm-hmm. And what we really have to focus on is putting the onus on the groups coming in to be, ensure that they are healthy. 
before they come here. Yeah. And, you know, so there's, you know, there's some things we can do to kind of ensure that help happens. And the main thing is just to make it very clear to them is that they have to be healthy. Yeah. And, and, you know, which might mean that, you know, we would recommend that, you know, for the week prior to their trip with us, they really have to limit their social contact, mm-hmm. you know, depending where they're coming from, of course. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, if they're coming from Quebec or, or Ontario or something like that, you know, that is obviously going to be much more uh, key uh, versus somebody who's coming from the Yukon where, you know, there's absolutely hasn't been any cases of a COVID for the longest time. Mm-hmm. So, you know, yeah, we really have to rely on, on the guests, first of all. And we have to let them know ahead of time what we expect out of them. So, you know, as far as, you know, if, if, you're, if you're not feeling well, don't come. And, and we've made it clear in our cancellation policies is, you know, we're not going not to not refund the money because somebody chooses not to come because, yeah. because they're sick, right? We don't want anybody, even if, even if they don't know that it's COVID, we, we don't want people coming if, if, if they're sick. So, and then, I mean, we have to, yeah, that's the main thing is let people know ahead of time what we expect out of them. Yeah. And then when we do meet at, um, at, uh, at the hangar, uh, we have a person in town and she'll again, put them through another part of the screening process. Everybody has to do a, a, a COVID health declaration saying, you know, I haven't been out of the country in the last 14 days. I, mm-hmm. I haven't been exposed to anybody with COVID in the last 14 days. I don't have shortness of breath, don't have a fever. And, you know, there's a bunch of questions that, again, gives them another chance to kind of think of, you know, like, you know, am I, am I, am I good for this? And, and then, uh, you know, and then other than that, taking, a, you know, a, a temperature with a forehead infrared scanner. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if, if they're all good to go, then, then they're here. And, and at that point, we're hoping that we've really, you know, screened it down to a level where the risk is, is at a comfortable level of somebody actually starting to show, you know, symptoms up here. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, you know, we can't have that. Basically, we have to be, you know, 99% sure that the people coming up here are, are going to be good through the, through the course of the trip. Yeah. So that's how we're, yeah, that's how we're dealing with it is it's, it's a, it's a shared responsibility between the people coming here and us. Yeah. And so we have, um, and, and this health declaration has been made available to all the people that have um, booked and, and, and they know what we're doing as well. Mm-hmm. And most of the people, I believe all of the people we have booked so far um, have, they've been here before. So they know what, what's here yeah and and how we operate yeah. yeah like i mean no matter what we did up here i mean if we wiped everything down with bleach 10 times a day and you know <laughs> we all washed our hands 30 times a day it doesn't matter because it, we're in close proximity yeah and, you know unless we're outside um there's no way people can stay two meters apart yeah so that's why you know we really have to just be certain that people are healthy when they come up here because there's nothing that we can do once they're up here to, to minimize the, you know, the, the risk of the transmission of, of the virus. Yeah, exactly. Well, you know what, you, you see it and you think it, and you're like, well, it just means more time outside, which, which should equate to more skiing, right? Yeah, although the nights are long, right? Yeah. We only got so much daylight, so yeah. we are inside. And, yeah. and, you know, people, they like to socialize. Oh, absolutely. You know, I couldn't imagine. You know, I mean, I couldn't imagine trying to run a business like we do and just, you know, have people at the end of the day go to their rooms. Oh, gosh. You know, because, <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's why people come up here. You know, they want to relax and, and they want to sit and chat and, you know, they want to, you know, they want to play, you know, games like Pictionary and all that kind of stuff after dinner. And, and you know, they want to have fun. Yeah, and, exactly. And if you, if you try and make the experience so sterile in order to protect them, from a virus, they're, they're not going to have fun. No, that's no fun at all. That's no fun. And now it almost leads into when you start talking about having fun at the lodge and having fun just in general in the backcountry. it kind of leads me a little bit into my next question, which is uh, the great book that you just put out, 
tips for beginning backcountry skiers. You wrote that with a colleague of yours, Brett St. Clair. Now I, I read through it and you know, I thought to myself, this is such a great book that should be able to help so many people that kind of struggle with the questions, maybe ashamed to ask some questions to some people or ashamed to go into a shop and ask questions. Uh, what influenced you to put that book out? Well, um, yeah, truthfully, that was Brett's idea. Um, <laughs> Brett, he's, um, he's, a, he's, he's a, a fellow that we just met last year. Um, and it's kind of funny how, how it came about is he's, uh, he's a marketing guy back in New Hampshire. And um, he phoned us up um, last summer. And he's a skier. Yeah. And both him and his wife are back skiers. And he likes to come out west to go skiing. And, and what he has done in the past is he's, he's called up lodges that had really crappy websites like ours. <laughs> yeah, I can build you a website. I didn't think it was that crappy. It was well, nice. But I can build you a nice website and kind of help you with some marketing and stuff like that in exchange for a trip for my wife and I. So, you know, we said, sure. Sounds like a good idea. And so he, he did the website and it went live, you know, last fall sometime. And, and we had never met him mm-hmm. until he came out with his wife, Kristen, uh, last February. And, you know, he ended up being a super guy and we had a good time together and, and, um, so we've kind of kept him on <laughs> retainer. <laughs> so he's, he was supposed to come again this year, but that's not going to happen because of the border closure. Yeah. So he, yeah, he, he's kind of our PR guy. And it was, uh, it was kind of his dream to always write this book. So he had started on it and then he called me up uh, in the spring and said, you know, you know, I've always wanted to do this, this little booklet because you know, he, he knows a lot of people that are, want to, you know, the resort skiers and they want to get out into the backcountry and they just, mm-hmm. you know, they just don't know really where to get, get started. And Brad had kind of looked around a little bit and there, and he thought that, you know, there really wasn't a lot of info out there for people who want to get into the backcountry that, you know, might not necessarily have a bunch of experienced friends to help them get going. Yeah. And so he wanted to do the book and he asked me if I would co-write it with him and, and I said, sure. And, and that's how it all started. So we each did about half of it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Um, I mean, if you know Brett and you know me, you could probably tell who, who wrote what. But I think it worked out pretty well in the end. Um, yeah, it never really was an idea to, you know, kind of make money. But we thought that, um, you know, maybe a good, you know, side benefit would be to bring a little bit more exposure to our, our lodge up here. Mm-hmm. So that's why we put it as a link from our website, you know, so that people, you know, we get people on our, our mailing list if they want to download the book. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. No, I think it's a great idea. Yeah. And, and I think, I think we're going to see the fact that this book came out and, and it's great that Brett's in the marketing. He's, he's definitely nailed it. Um, is, I think there's going to be a huge influx in new backcountry skiers this season. And yeah, we sure have noticed that, you know, over the past few years up here um, in the Prince George area, um, like when we first started backcountry skiing, probably even up until the, geez, I would think maybe like 10 years ago, you would, uh, you know, drive to a trailhead and, and if there was a pickup there, Eddie, you know, who, whose truck it was and, we knew all the backcountry skiers now i mean you go to a trailhead and you know like some of the busy places you know there might be you know a a dozen vehicles parked there on a on a a weekend Mm -hmm. i'm thinking of places like highway like sugar bowl or viking ridge or something like that yeah so um yeah and there's a lot of kind of young people um getting into it whereas Back when we started, yeah, it wasn't so much the young people. It was kind of the, you know, kind of middle-aged people that were the skiers. But now, I mean, we have people in our in our avalanche courses that are, 
I mean, they're too young to, to sign the waiver. They have to, <laughs> we have to have their parents come in and, and sign the waiver. So, you know, these are kids that are 14, you know, years, 14, 15 years old, and they want to be backcountry skiers. Yeah. You know, when I was that age, I, I never would have thought about it. You know, I would have thought, well, you know, what's the point of going skiing if, you, if there's no chairlift? <laughs> but I mean, nowadays people really see the attraction to, mm-hmm. to getting out there. And, 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 I, and then the more, you know, the more stuff that is out there, like, you know, magazines now, there's, you know, specific backcountry skiing magazines. And, and you can't go into a, you know, you can't go into your local ski shop anymore without, you know, a big, you know, a TV screen with, you know, the latest, you know, backcountry skiing ma- or uh, video on and stuff like that. So, yeah, I mean, people see that kind of stuff and they want to do it. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And I mean, I think I think having parents sign waivers for young lads and 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 ladies getting into avalanche training is a is a good problem to have. I think it's a it's a sign of that we're going to be coming into some backcountry recreationalists that are going to take maybe a more serious approach, um, and hopefully yeah. it has a positive result in the long run. Hopefully, that type of uh, individual will help us decrease incidents in the in the backcountry. Yeah, I think that, that that is definitely true, particularly for the like the ski and and splitboard crowd. Um, it's almost yeah, like people who are getting into the backcountry on you know in a self-repelled fashion. Most of them really. Th- feel the value or see the value in getting some training, you know, before they get too deep into mm-hmm. the, into the sport. Um, I mean, I, I did have an inquiry, you know, just a couple of days ago from somebody who wants to do an ASD one course. And we usually schedule our courses for early January. And this guy was really hoping that we would do one in December because he wants to take a course because he plan you would like to get, to get into the back country over the Christmas vacation, he wants to do the course before the holidays so he can go out, you know, ski in the mountains. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, it, it, yeah, it really, yeah, the, the skiers and splitboarders, um, they've totally embraced the idea of getting some training well, and before actually, they get yeah. into any serious training. But uh, on the other hand, I think it's a bit of a slower um, transition to that kind of mentality for the motorized crowd for for the the sledders. Yeah, um, it's, it's it's different mentality for mm-hmm. sure. And I know that's one of the challenges that the the Avalanche Center you know has really been putting a lot of focus on is for the motorized crowd. Um, you know to to kind of sh- you know show them the value of getting training before you get too big into the sport and pushing the terrain and stuff like that. And yeah, they've, they found it a challenge, but I think eventually and slowly it, it is kind of, it is kind of going in the right direction. Everybody is kind of seeing that, it, you know, if you if you want to keep at this game for, for a long time, you, you got to get some, some education. The other group we've really noticed is also snowshoers. Mm-hmm. Um, don't ask me why, but <laughs> snowshoeing is very, very popular. I guess because anybody can do it, but yeah. and lots of people are into hiking now, so they they want to go snowshoe these same trails that they've been hiking on all summer. But around here, many of the hiking trails um, they have some avalanche areas on them, like sometimes right where the trails go up. Mm-hmm. kind of thing so um there has been quite a bit of recognition over the last i'd say three or four years um at targeting the snowshoe crowd as well and um for the last two years we've actually had enough people to do a run a separate snowshoe specific course oh, wow. because yeah because it's 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 really hard to actually mix um snowshoers and skiers together for the field day yeah. I mean, you know, the, the, the class information is all the same, but um, on a field day, it's, it's just they travel at different paces and, and it's, it's difficult traveling with them together. So it's been really great to have enough people the last, I think, two, last two years we've had um, hmm. 
full courses of um, snowshoe people. So like they're also a, a good group to um, that they're, they're sort of coming on stream now because yeah, I think a lot of them felt that, you know, snowshoeing wasn't risky, but mm -hmm. some of them were not aware that some of the, you know, micro terrain features that they're snowshoeing through have potential as well for avalanche. I, th I think that's a thing. That's a common thing we see. I, I know for myself, uh, being around people that aren't experienced in the backcountry, they don't, they can't see avalanche terrain because they don't understand avalanche terrain. And so they're willing yeah. to, to walk through something or snowmobile through something or go somewhere and it's, and it's ignorance. And, and I know that I, I've suffered from it early on. And I look back at some of the things that I've done in the past and really at the end of the day i've i've gotten lucky <laughs> and yeah i think most of us can definitely relate to that <laughs> um yeah like when we think back on our early days we we did some pretty stupid things and, and we had we had some close calls and, and and stuff like that and um yeah i think it's i mean that's it, kind of the natural progression of of you know becoming comfortable in any type of activity is that you tend to start out with ignorance mm -hmm. where i mean you, you don't know any better so i mean <laughs> you just go and do it right yeah yeah and then and then, you know then you maybe get uh, you maybe you, you have you know an accident or or somebody you know as as an incident or something like that and it it uh, causes you to stop and take a second look and, and maybe get some training and then, then you have some training and and i see this in a lot of our ast one students you know they take a, a two-day ast one course and and you, you, they, they feel that they're experts <laughs> <laughs> and, and their confidence is super high and then and then again something will happen uh, you know, they'll go for a ride or one of their friends will or, or something like that. And then their confidence gets really low and then it builds up again, not quite as high as it was the first time. Mm -hmm. And then something else will happen in that. You go through a kind of a couple of jumps like that until eventually your training and your experience uh, and uh, it kind of levels out to a kind of a nice, comfortable level of acceptable risk that you're you know, risk that you're willing to accept. You can you can graph it. Actually, it's it's pretty interesting how how everybody's progression goes through their, you know, from you know being you know feeling like you're totally bulletproof to becoming comfortable with you know your ability to make decisions and your ability to say yes and, and or no you know in a particular piece of terrain. Yeah, I mean, I, I fall right into that same demographic for sure. I, I know uh, for me, I had an experience a few years back that, that changed my life. And I came home and said to my wife, and we just had our second kid. And I said, today's the last day that I come home and tell you that I triggered an avalanche. Uh, just no yeah. more. Just no more. This isn't, you know, in, in that particular scenario, we were pulling away from something bigger because it, it, it screamed very loudly that we had no business being there. And, uh, I just made a poor choice on the second backup line that we were going to ski and yeah, ended up going for a ride and terrifying my friends cause they thought I was buried and, and, you know, so after that I was like, okay, that's, let's smarten up now. Now talking about um, that curve and, and going through that ebb and flow of, of realizing your education versus your ability and finally coming to terms to that. Do you have any uh, experiences in your past that sort of hit close to home or, or incidents that you were involved in or witnessed that altered your behavior uh, moving forward? I mean, yeah, I guess, you know, there probably has been, you know, several. Um, and, yeah, you know, just thinking back, you know, on, on some in particular, you know, the, the interesting thing is when, when you do have an incident and then, you, you know, you, you survive it and then you sit back, you know, a day or two later and you think about, 
you know, what the problem was, you know, why, why did this happen? I think that's where we all learn an awful lot is kind of going back and analyzing, you know, what we did right or what we did wrong. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the, the situations that I can think of personally where, you know, we got into, into a situation that I would call an incident is, is because we weren't, or I or whoever I was with, weren't necessarily making logical decisions based on what we saw out there. Um, we were letting our ambition or, you know, other types of human factors cloud our decision-making, mm-hmm. you know, just the fact that, you know, we would, you know, we'd go out with the, the idea that, that, you know, we kind of made up our mind what we were going to do before we even got there, that type of situation. Mm-hmm. And I, I've found now, you know, as I've gotten older, I'm, uh, and, and I guess I'm and, and quite a bit more experienced, I find it a lot easier to, to sit back and look at something and, and think of it not so much, you know, like oh, how great it would be to ski that line there and how great it would be to, you know, take my guests down that run there. But think about it, you know, like, okay, you know, what's the snowpack like and, you know, what is the weather done and, 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 you know, what is my group like and, you know, kind of put all those things into the question mm-hmm. and then, and, and then, you know, come up with a, a decision that kind of fits properly in the matrix where you take all that information and put it into the form. Whereas, you know, when I was younger and less experienced, you know, I think it was a lot harder to, you know, kind of, you know, base a decision, you know, on real facts rather than on, on, on what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if that answers your question. I didn't really, you know, give you any specifics about any particular no. incidents in the past. I mean, there's been lots and some of them, you know, have been potentially life ending and, and some have just been eye opening, but that's the way I've, I've tried to approach it is try and learn from, you know, mistakes and, and carry that knowledge forward. So that the next time I'm in a situation where it could go either way, I can make a better decision. And, and I think that's really all that, all the, that type of question is, is meant to bring out is, is how, experiencing them either once or twice or multiple times, how it alters the way you're going to look at things moving forward in the future. Now, how about for yourself, Bonnie, has, have you ever experienced anything like that that sort of altered the way that you approach? Uh, yeah. Um, well, actually I did have a little, I was probably the closest thing to a full burial we've had. And um, it was quite embarrassing for me actually, because um, I had started off later with a couple people that had stayed back with me and I was heading up to meet Craig and the rest of the group. And um, when I left the lodge, it was like minus 10 or something at the lodge. And then I'm skiing up to this uphill to this point and I'm noticing it's getting really warm and um, got to the place where I was going to take my skins off. And I knew it was quite warm because I remember, I took out my thermometer to actually see what the temperature was and it was close to zero which was like oh wow that's really interesting Mm -hmm. and I'd only climbed up like maybe a thousand feet but anyway so and I needed to meet Craig and and where I knew where this up track was where he was probably going to be coming by and so I um, just said I'm just going to go over here and check because we could ski down a little ways and I was thinking I could contour around um, to meet this up track but anyways, it turned out I got over this little rise and decided, no, I can't do this contour around. So I was just going to ski down this little slope to meet the up track. And um, I came over this rise and didn't bother stopping at the top. Mm-hmm. And I skied like two or three turns into it. And I'm, I think I'm in my third turn through it. And I feel it moving. But it's a very short little slope, so I wasn't really that worried about it. And um, it kind of pushed me to my knees, but, you know, I could feel it stopping. So I'm kind of down on my knees. It's moving a little bit. The this, this slope was only like 30 meters long, not mm-hmm. even very long. But anyways, so I'm just about to stand up. And um, the wall of snow from behind hits me from behind because I, 
I had triggered it when I went in, but like I didn't, I, w I went in without stopping. So I was three turns in. So when I came to a stop, there was a bunch of snow above me that continued on. And I luckily I was able to shove my hand up quickly because the snow that covered me from behind, um, I was in a sitting position that covered me. It covered my whole head and face and my oh, hand wow. was sticking out. And luckily I was able to, and it was kind of on a flat here, but I was able to use my hand to just scoop out where my mouse was oh, wow. and my face. So yeah, I was pretty much buried and I was really, really worried about my two guests. Like I'd gone out of sight of them, mm -hmm. which is another mistake I made. I was worried about them coming over and releasing any more snow over me because another two inches would have fully buried me again. Right. So, but luckily they came down and luckily my, my mouse was clear and I could, I could yell at them like, come dig me out and which they did. And, um, but it was, it was quite an eye opener because I was, you know, it was a very, very small slope. I underestimated the slope mm -hmm. and um, yeah. And I was in a hurry. I was in a hurry. I kind of lost, went out of sight. Like I like to mean, normally I like to maintain eye contact with people I'm skiing with. Yeah. And um, yeah, there were several things I did wrong. And then the whole temperature thing was kind of really interesting too, because, you know, minus 10 at the lodge is minus 10 is a nice temperature for skiing. Mm -hmm. But as soon as you warm up to zero, you're losing strengths in the snow. And it was, it was a slightly loaded little tiny little roll. It was yeah. very small. Like, you know, people think that it's always some big avalanche slope that that's going to get you, but it can be very small micro features as well. You're in the wrong place. It's a little teeny terrain trap or, you know, it's, it was an eye opener. Yeah. No, that's no a, injury. So, and I didn't good. lose anything. <laughs> <laughs> that's good. That's good. No, that's a great story. That's a great story. And you, you know, Wes, I think a lot of avalanches incidents are, are, you know, you can trace them down to, you know, human factors as, as being a big part of the, you know, the cause of, of, of the accident. Um, just, you know, people like Bonnie being in a rush mm -hmm. or, you know, or something like that, just not kind of thinking through through your your um, decision-making process logically. I, I do think of one thing that really kind of impressed upon me, you know, that, you know how it's so easy for um, human factors to kind of take a hold of your decision-making process. And this happened... Oh, quite a long time ago, um, I, I was working at, as a heli ski guide, and the company that I was working for, um, they had a pretty big uh, film program where, you know, they would bring in you know big film companies like Matchstick, and I can't remember some of the names of the other ones. But, you know, these guys that make you know the the big you know mm -hmm. extreme skiing type films and stuff like that. And, and uh, so I, I was put one, with one of these film crews for about a week or so. And uh, conditions weren't all that good. Um, we had, we had, it was, um, we, you know, I had one of those Arctic fronts come down. So we had a lot of north wind. Uh, so a lot of the snow um, on the northern aspects was, was hammered or pressed pretty good by the wind. And it was really cold. And so for, you know, the first four or five days, they just weren't getting any good shots. Yeah. Uh, I was working with another guide and, you know, we'd fly to one big thing, you know, and, and we'd try some stuff and, you know, they would film and the athletes would, you know, ski it. Well, they, these were boarders though. They would go up and, you know, throw themselves off, something like that. And, but it just wasn't mm -hmm. working out. They weren't getting the stuff they were looking for. So as the week progressed, Without knowing it, but me and Ivan, the other guy, we were starting to feel pressure to produce some something for these guys to get something that they could use. Yeah. And so, you know, I think back on it, every day we kept pushing it a little bit more. We'd get up into some more terrain that, you know, I would have called marginal, but, you know, we would go up there and try and get a good shot. And then finally on the last day, uh, it was the last day that they were there. And, and we really felt the pressure to produce something. And um, we spent the day, you know, things were going okay, but not great. Yeah. And then finally, uh, we landed up on 
on this knife-edged ridge. Like we'd flown around it a little bit, and, and uh, Ivan he got out uh, with the camera crew a little bit lower down and took them down to a spot where they could film. And you know, it was my job to get out with the two athletes. And we landed on the ridge, and, and right then I could tell I, I didn't like it because it was super exposed. Like um, it was like a knife edge ridge, like the helicopter basically hovered there while I got out. And I realized at this point that you know now that we're out of this helicopter, we're not getting back in it. <laughs> and uh, and the only way down is is to go down the south face of this mountain. And, you know, the wind had been blowing hard from the north and, and loading up the south side. And um, so we inched along the ridge there, and I got to this cool wire, and that was the only way down. And, and Ivan and the two camera guys were down quite a bit lower. And I said, okay, you guys, you know, I'm going to go down here. Yeah, I don't really like it, but, you know, I think I can get down if I kind of stay on, on the edge of of this cool wire because I could see that there was a slab in the bottom and I, I'm going to try and stay off the slab and then we'll work our way down until we get out of the wind effect and then you guys can do your stuff with the camera. So I did that. I kind of side slipped and kind of hopped around a few times to face in the other direction. Mm-hmm. And then as I was hopping around, the tails of my ski just happened to catch the slab. Oh. <laughs> and, let loose. Uh, and before I had a chance to move, I was in this avalanche um, that was racing down the school or down the south side of the mountain. And uh, luckily it didn't run too far until it benched out. And, uh, but the minute I was caught, I felt my knee snap. And uh, so I rode down and ended up being half buried uh, with a lot of pain in my leg. And luckily um, the two uh, border athletes were able to size slip down on the bed surface, come down and dig me out. And the helicopter was able to come right into the bench there and pick me up. But that was, that was the end of my heli skiing career. So I had time to think when I was in recovery about what had gone on there. And I felt like such an idiot because the pressure of trying to produce some good shots for these two guys, it got to us. Mm-hmm. And we should have known better. We shouldn't have been there, but we just we just had this pressure to produce, and uh, and we let it influence our decision making. And so I think you know that was kind of the last straw with me as far as I think now I'm pretty good at at not you know jumping into any kind of terrain because people want to ski it or, you know, they're saying, oh, that looks great. And, you know, I'll just say no. I mean, it'll be there tomorrow. Exactly. Or it'll be there next year. I'm just not comfortable with it today. And, and you know, I'll say, the hell with, with you know, I, I'm calling the shots here. <laughs> I don't like it. We'll just go somewhere else. <laughs> so, that, yeah, that was a, a real good learning experience for me, even though it caused me a, Correct me, but it was probably worth it in the end. Yeah, that's a that's an expensive price to pay, but that's definitely that's a that's a great story, and it's so funny that saying of well, it's going to be here tomorrow. That's something that that I carry with me all the time. Um, you know, when COVID hit, I had friends that were still going out ski touring, and because I I myself am pursuing my my CA level one operations and might look into moving into the guide stream as things progress. And I just felt it would be irresponsible for me to go against the recommendations and go out ski touring. And so that was always my thought. My friends would say, Oh, it's, and it was such a great ski season that we had this winter past winter and, and to yeah. have it cut short. I was just like, but I was like, ah, you know what? It's, it's not worth it. And for me, I reflected on the times that I was in an incident and that morning when I woke up, I didn't roll out of bed and say, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to get involved in an avalanche incident. Like that's not what I woke up with in my mind. And, and so I always just keep that in the back of my head and then always remind myself, these mountains aren't going anywhere. Some of them are, the glaciers, yeah. are, but the mountains around here aren't going anywhere and winter will always be around and that line will always be there. So that's right. And it always gives you something to shoot for too in the future. You know, if you don't ski it today, you can think about it some more and plan it out so that when you when you do do it, you're really ready. 
Oh man, I can't thank you guys enough for taking time <laughs> to do this. Yeah. Hey, it, was, it was great talking to you. Thank you guys so much. And I, I hopefully we can stay in touch and, you know, I might, I might hassle yeah. you a bit once I get my level one ops to maybe come shadow a, an AST one to help me on my way. Yeah. Sounds good. Yeah. Good luck with, uh, with your winter and uh, yeah, you guys we'll too. talk again. Yeah, you bet. Okay. Have fun. Oh, I will. Take care. Bye. Yeah. Take it easy. Bye. What a great conversation with Craig and Bonnie. If you want to know more, you can follow them on Instagram at Deseco Lodge, or you can head on over to their website, Deseco.com. That's with the Z or a Z. I guess that depends where you're from. Either way, you can find the link in the podcast notes. And we'd like to give a shout out to our generous supporters, MND Safety. Head on over to at TAS by MND and check out the pictures of the new system installed in the Bois de Sioux area of the French Alps to protect the altitude roads of Savoie. And of course, 10 Barrel Brewing. If you're hunting for that refreshing beverage after your prey, head on over to 10barrel.com Click on the beer finder to find the closest tasty 10 barrel brew. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and head on over to the website, theavalancheshower.com, to stay up to date on guests and offers. If you like the podcast, subscribe, rate, and drop us a review. Then maybe tell a friend, tell that friend to tell a friend. The music in the background is provided by my good friend, Chris Kaplinski. And of course, thanks to Mike T for the artwork. Don't forget to send us a screenshot of your subscription to the Avalanche Hour podcast at gmail.com for your chance to win a Primo Snow and Avalanche El Professional Saw. And head on over to primoavalanche.com and use the promo code TAH10 for 10% off at checkout. Until next time, Stay tuned, stay safe, and keep having fun out there.